This podcast is brought to you by Aetna. Learn how Aetna is working to build a healthier world by visiting aetnastory.com. Hi, it's Doro, and I'm so excited to announce that the Achieving Optimal Health Conference is just around the corner on October 26th at Georgetown University. For our Health Gig listeners, we have a special offer. If you sign up by September 20th, you'll get $50 off your ticket. Just go to AchievingOptimalHealthConference.com and use the code HEALTHGIG. Get ready to create a happier and healthier life story. People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Cliff Smith is Ernst & Young's America's Mindfulness Network leader. Ernst & Young is a multinational professional services firm with 270,000 employees in over 700 offices around the world, with over 60 mindfulness champions in more than a dozen countries. Cliff alone has facilitated mindfulness training to over 20,000 Ernst & Young personnel. Welcome, Cliff, to HealthGig. Thank you. I'm very, very honored to be here, to be one of your guests. It's really exciting. Cliff, how did you get into mindfulness? My first foray into mindfulness occurred between the ages of 10 and 12. My mother entered me into a contest. I was a you know young boy who was into martial arts, and she entered me into a contest for families in a low socioeconomic situation to win free lessons and was fortunately one of the kids who won, one of five kids. And in that process, we did mindfulness, although I didn't know what it was at the time. We were doing meditation as well. And I really learned three things from that experience. I began to be more mindful of my fear and to be able to move forward despite feeling those sensations of fear, thoughts as well. I also began to become more mindful of negative self-talk self-criticism, mm. self-doubt, feeling like a victim, saying things like, I can't, this isn't for me, not good enough, those types of things, which, you know, when you're a kid in elementary school and you have this big token that says you get free lunches, it sort of messes with your confidence a little bit. And then the third thing was, it really gave me an ability to focus. And I talk about this in my keynote, but it was a lot easier to learn how to focus back then in the early mid-80s because we didn't have the internet. We barely were starting the 24-hour news cycle, let alone having a cell phone in our pocket that's constantly beeping. And so that was my first interaction with mindfulness. And then I can continue on a little bit about how it's impacted my life. My life started in a trailer in South Carolina. My parents were divorced when I was very young, so my mother raised me and my two younger siblings, so I'm the oldest. After a pretty lackluster career in high school where I like to say that I was determined to excel at being mediocre, which I succeeded at, I joined the military. I came from a military family. My aunts, uncles, and grandparents were in the military. Grandfathers, I should say. And I wanted to earn the freedom that I think we were sort of gifted. When I was in the Army, I got that first sort of opportunity to test out that whole awareness of fear thing. I graduated on Friday, and I was in the Army on Monday. And that was the first time I had flown in a plane that I can remember. Maybe when I was younger, I did, but as an adult, quotes around that word adult. (laughs) And I was terrified in that plane. And so recognized that fear and had an opportunity not too long later to volunteer to go to airborne school and learn how to jump out of planes. And that was really one of the earliest times where I realized I could be afraid of something and still do it. Also in the military, I had an opportunity to, when I was thinking about reenlisting, to learn Chinese. Again, 
there is that negative self-talk that started to come up. You know, who is this kid who could barely graduate high school thinking he's going to learn one of the most difficult languages in the world? And I would be lying to say that the fact that there was a bonus associated with if you could actually learn it, that played into my decision. But moving forward, despite that negative self-talk and then being able to learn and become a Chinese linguist really changed my life. And then fast forward a few years, I got out of the military, joined the Department of Defense, deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan as a civilian doing human intelligence. And then I had an opportunity to become a diplomat. And I went to attache school and became a diplomat in our embassy in Beijing, China. Yeah, I saw online <laughs> that you were baptized there. So yes. it's really, really cool. First, first person. person. Yeah, yeah, first person Amazing. to be baptized in China. <laughs> yeah. And so I was poor kid, wrong side of the tracks, enlisted soldier, became a Chinese linguist. To become a diplomat, represent our country, was really the pinnacle of that part of my career. And you would think that I was on top of the world. And I was outwardly, I mean, I displayed that. But inwardly, I had those thoughts flowing around of not being good enough. Do I really belong with these people? Feeling like an imposter. And so when a friend of mine suggested that I apply to Harvard when I was thinking about going to grad school, I told him he was out of his bleeping mind. (laughs) I'll let you and your audience fill in that part. If you were to reflect on my sort of arc of success in my life, and I don't think success is just achievement after achievement, but it was clear I had enough evidence in my own life that just because something seems difficult doesn't mean that it's impossible. And yet that's what my brain served up. Basically, my brain served up this idea that this was impossible. I think the reason for that is our brains are designed to keep us safe, to survive, not to make us happy. And so my brain projected out what it thought was going to happen, which is failure. And what does failure equal? Pain. In order to protect me, my brain served up this thought, this belief that this was impossible. Fortunately for me, I had a friend there, the same guy, who asked me, he didn't just ask me once, he asked me on a daily basis for about three weeks. And at some point, I said to myself, you know, what is he seeing that I don't see? And what are you doing? Like, you've been here before. You've had these negative self-doubt. Why not this? Right? And other people were like, you should just do it. And so I did. And much to my surprise, I got accepted. And it was one of the most emotional days of my life. I mean, Mm. I, I called my mother from China, the most important person in my life at the time, for sure, crying like a baby. It was rough. I mean, my mom would cry if I left for a long weekend. And so I was calling her from China. This is how bad my emotions were, or not how bad, but how emotional I was. She said, honey, I love you. I'm so, so proud of you, but maybe you should call me back when you've gathered yourself. And so I went to grad school and graduated and all of that. But what I realized in that moment was mindfulness is such a powerful tool to uncover these limiting beliefs. And Mm. that time actually inspired me to become an executive coach and wrap mindfulness into my coaching. And I was doing that individually, only with one person at a time. And I saw an opportunity at EY to present something to larger groups. And what started out as a presentation to six people around a conference room table turned into much, much more. Wow. So you came in to EY to bring mindfulness? Is that what they brought you in for or what you were... No. So I actually came into EY to work in the government public sector practice to serve that set of clients, that market segment. I had spent 17 years in active federal service in one capacity or another. And I maintain then and still maintain a lot of contacts in the intelligence community in particular. And so for the last, I'd say, four and a half years, I've been leading the intelligence community account in our government public sector practice. But I'm happy to announce that EY just created a new position for me 
which will have as a main responsibility to continue to deliver, develop, and expand our mindfulness programs within our official learning development team at the America's region level. That's impressive and amazing. Was it hard for you to get EY to buy into this, or was it an easy fit? I would say that mindfulness at EY grew out of a grassroots effort, and I certainly can't take credit for starting it. I mean, I think I could take credit for it being the first person in this region to really start to push and grow it, but obviously nothing happens on your own. But we had a very visionary manager in our UK practice, a woman by the name of Leonie Shell, who had the idea to start a mindfulness network. And there was a few people in June of 2015. And I called them up. I found out that they existed. And I, yeah, I called them up and I said, Leonie, I would love to support your network. Can you connect me with your people in the Americas? Because I want to support them. And they said, Cliff, you're our person in the Americas. So I was like, all right, let's go build this thing. That's amazing. Have you seen any difference in the culture yet? Or is it too soon to see? Because it hasn't been real formal yet, right? We have some qualitative data. I personally have some qualitative data. And we are doing pre and post course data collection. It's all self-report, which there are some limitations there. We don't yet have our own fMRI machine, (laughs) but we are seeing, I am seeing some differences in terms of the emails I get. And I brought a few quotes to read to you a little later, but I think what happened is we started giving small classes and six people turned to 12 people and 12 turned to 24 and 48, et cetera. And I got invited to do a couple, you know, hundred people and that went well. And I got invited to do this intern conference and there was about 600 people at a time for those. And then out of the blue, I got this call from one of my colleagues named Jen Shaw. She's a leader in our talent team. She said to me, hey, Cliff, you know, you've been doing these mindfulness talks around EY for a little while now. I have an opportunity for you. Our CEO, Mark Weinberger, he had to cancel his keynote at our annual Milestones event, and it was an hour. Would you be willing to step in and take his spot and give your presentation to 3,600 new managers? And after I picked up the phone and uh, (laughs) closed my mouth and gathered myself. I said, yeah, let's do it. And that event went really well. And that got connected to the America's chief learning officer, a guy by the name of Tal Goldhammer, who immediately saw the value and began to be quite supportive in terms of introducing me to folks and providing some leadership top cover for me to do this as, as I said, a side gig. I had a primary job that I was doing for the last, you know, four years. What are the mindfulness training programs like at Ernst & Young, and are they modeled after a particular program? We have multiple sort of interventions. I would say the most common one, the one that I do and the one that our champions do, is basic intro. We offer them something that really, it does three things, and I do three things in my keynote demystify mindfulness, right? Let people know that they don't have to wear any special robes. They don't have to go anywhere. They don't have to buy beads. Not that there's anything wrong with those things, but they don't need them, right? Talk about the science and benefits and then give them a few practices that they can sort of walk away with immediately. So that's sort of the first basic level intro. And then we also have like two to four hour workshops where we delve in a little bit deeper and then we have an eight week course. And in terms of what they're modeled after, so the I would say like the big three, and I have to say, you know, EY is not in the business of endorsing any particular company or program or anything like that. So these are just things that have evolved over time, but we've based our eight week course primarily on MBSR, MBCT, and then some emotional intelligence exercise as discussed in the book, Search Inside Yourself and the Programming 
that's out of the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute. Can you go back and say what it's based on? So MBSR, Mindfulness Stress yeah, Reduction so, Program. Can you tell our listeners what those sure. programs are? Yeah, sure. So Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, MBSR, is a, a program developed by a man named John Kabat-Zinn out of the University of Massachusetts, which is probably the most researched mindfulness intervention that's out there. And, you know, it's sort of a tried and true, tested eight-week type of a curriculum. And then MBCT is out of the UK. I believe Mark Coleman and some folks have supported that. And then Search Inside Yourself grew out of Google. I think they started in 2006 trying to teach mindfulness and emotional intelligence to their engineers. What works, I think, in a clinical setting and what works, you know, at your local library and what works in a corporate setting are different. And so what I tried to do, you know, EYers are busy. You know, there's a lot of things going on. You might not be at the same client each day. And I've found it very difficult to get folks away for one specific program for two days at a time or for eight weeks. And so what we've done is we've modified a few things. We've taken what we felt works best in the corporate environment. And so instead of meeting two and a half hours a week, we meet an hour and a half. We do assign homework. They have practices that they're supposed to do. And we found that that's been quite successful and we have a huge waiting list for our program. That's amazing. So that the hope is then to change a culture at EY or what's the mission? So I would say there's a mission of the Mindfulness Network, which is an employee-led grassroots effort. I think we're probably still too early to say what the overall mission is for the new role, other than to continue to inculcate these practices into other successful learning programs, right? So I was in Atlanta earlier this week at a tax manager learning week, and I did the keynote, but also we held three drop-in sessions, just 20 minutes. People come in, they have an opportunity to reset and recenter. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I would say that the purpose of the America's Mindfulness Network is really to positively influence three key aspects of our employees, of our people, I should say, leadership, well-being, and performance. And so from a leadership perspective, we really want to develop mindful leaders who are more emotionally intelligent, more empathetic, and more inclusive, well-being, really to enable our people to better manage stress, be less reactive, be more present. And then from a performance perspective, to increase our people's ability to focus amidst a complex and distracting world, take wider perspectives, and really to be able to respond with clarity, even if they're under pressure. And I would say our folks are. I think anybody in the corporate environment is. And then also, from a well-being perspective, it really is a war on talent, and people will vote with their feet. I think our global recruiting leader, Dan Black, recently said, it's a dogfight for talent. You know, I've presented at Georgetown, I've presented other universities supportive of our recruiting efforts, and I think people are surprised that EY has a program like this and also excited. Well, I think so. As I think we mentioned to you, that's how we heard about it from actually my son who's newly hired at EY and he was really excited to hear that there is that program. But the stress, can you talk about stress at the workplace and Mm -hmm. how you think that this is going to help your employees? We live in this modern world where the volume and velocity of information is coming at us at a rate that's unprecedented in our history. We have an almost always on type of a culture, right? Now that said, we have leaders that are amazing and they say things like, don't give up a seat at the dining room table for a seat at the boardroom table, which I absolutely love. It's one of the first things I heard when I came to the firm. And yet we also are you know, type A, very competitive, and people wanna excel. What mindfulness does is it gives them the tools to better 
manage the normal ups and downs of a corporate life, but also personal life. I mean, the emails that I get aren't always like, I have a better relationship with my manager. Sometimes it's, I have a better relationship with my spouse. Mm -hmm. And this isn't like a, you teach it at EY and it only impacts their relationships at EY. There is a thought out there that shouldn't we just lower the conditions that are causing stress as opposed to teaching them how to manage stress. And I think while that's a positive and one way of looking at it, I think it sometimes misses this idea that much of our stress is internally generated. Right. That's what mm-hmm. um, John Kabat-Zinn talks about, right? Yeah. Is that there really is no stress. It's your reaction to a situation. Right. It's the meaning you layer on. So one of the practices or role plays I do in some of my longer workshops will be, if you want me to explain it. So I do a scenario where I basically say to the audience, I'm going to walk you through a scenario. All I want you to do is just let me know what emotion you feel in this situation. The scenario is very simple. You see a colleague walking towards you down the corridor or down the hallway. You make direct eye contact with them. And they just walk right by you. They don't say hi. They don't wave. They don't nod. Nothing. How do you feel? And I normally get between five and seven different reactions. Anger, embarrassed, confused, concerned, furious, you know, all of these things. And I ask them, I say, okay, so we had one scenario and we had seven emotions. And then I ask them, what are some thoughts that came up with those emotions? And so anger might be, what a jerk. Confused might be, I wonder what's wrong. Embarrassed might be, I hope somebody didn't see that. And so I say, okay, so if you have one scenario and seven reactions, what does that say about what's actually causing your emotional reaction? And there's normally silence. And someone will eventually say, oh, it's my interpretation. It's my interpretation of what that action meant. And we don't know. We have a very limited perspective. Unless we find that guy later and talk to them, we don't know. And most people just sort of live with that reaction. And it doesn't just impact them in that moment. They might go to their desk and think about it for 20 minutes or two hours. And so there's a lot of stress comes internal, our internal appraisal of, of what's happening outside. And mindfulness gets to the core of that. Are you seeing people being kinder to each other? Because we're such a large firm, you know, and despite reaching 20,000 people, I don't often see how they are in their teams when they get back. But I can read you a few things that we've gotten from some of our class participants. What was most valuable for me that the course helped me use these techniques to manage some unexpected family health issues that came up during the past several weeks. I found myself able to make choices more clearly than in the past about where my focus needed to be, home versus work, and when to stay present with whatever needed my attention. The Mindful Leadership course was a really valuable time for me to learn to be in the moment, listen to my body and thoughts, and put them to the best use at home and work. We can all be more mindful every day, imagine the benefits to society. This has been extremely beneficial during a difficult period in my life. The course practice would be extremely beneficial for our organization. I'm far from perfect in my mindfulness practice, but I can genuinely say that it makes me feel happier, less stressed, and more loved as a result. I'm going to add a pen to that a little bit because I think there is a misunderstanding in the mindfulness circles that it's about feeling happy or feeling relaxed all the time. I think mindfulness allows you to be with what is here, right? Of course, change what you can, but even if there's something you can change, it's still helpful to accept the fact that it's already here first. And then you can move forward more wisely with intention. I think intentions also often sort of gets a little bit short shrift in some of the training. They talk about, you know, focus on your breath, bring your breath back. But intention, developing an intention, whether it's for your practice or for other things, is really important as well. 
Do you envision having meditation rooms available for your employees or how do you envision the support day to day for the mindfulness practice? I have been contacted by the folks that develop our four plans and future looking buildings and things like that. And they have started to include elements specific to, at least in the planning, specific to mindfulness, including rooms. And so I don't know that those things have happened yet. So that's one that was, was the second part of that question? How do you envision the support maybe at work oh, then? Yeah. So the other piece is we envision the network as a whole to be a community for people to go back to after they have the formal training. And so now that we're going to have more formal training in our learning and development curriculum, our champions, I think, are going to be even more important. And so we endeavor and really want our champions to be the person in that particular office to hold a weekly session or bi-weekly session if they can. And so we're also a firm that values innovation and technology. And so at the global level, we have bi-weekly Zoom sessions that people can dial into. We're doing the same thing in the Americas region. You know, time zones make it difficult for one session to hit everybody just to give people almost like a dial-in number to call, right? It's like, okay, we're going to be on at Thursday at 1 p.m. Dial in. We'll do a quick 20-minute guided meditation. And we stick to typically a few, you know, mindfulness of breath and body, body scans, just like me, loving kindness, and sounds and thoughts meditation, more of an open awareness. So the idea then that as an employee, I can call in there, my supervisor or my partner is supporting that really is important. Will there be any credit given to me for participating in these programs? EY has a very robust program called EY Badges, and it covers many, many different topics, robotic process automation, data analytics, and one of them is called transformational leadership. And basically to get the bronze badge or the silver badge or the gold badge, you have to take part in certain training and have certain experiences. And so I've been in talks with the folks that have the transformational leadership badge to see if Part of this can be incorporated into that stage sort of process. How can people whose employers don't provide mindfulness training become more mindful at work? I think there's a a couple things they can do. Again, I'm not endorsing any particular program, but they could avail themselves of the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute training. I probably should disclose that I'm a certified Search Inside Yourself teacher as well as qualified MBSR I should say provisionally qualified MBSR teacher. So there's Search Inside Yourself. There's a company called The Potential Project that focuses on corporate mindfulness. Even if they want to be more mindful at work, doesn't mean they have to take a corporate-focused mindfulness program. They could take a local MBSR program. I would highly suggest that they inquire into that person's certification or qualifications. There's a lot of qualifications out there that aren't going to be to the level of something like UMass or University of San Diego you know, in the UK for MBCT might be Oxford or Exeter. I would really just be careful to make sure you're getting high quality teaching. In your wildest dreams, I think what we heard you say early on in your wildest dreams, you never thought you'd be sitting in this position teaching 20,000 people, having the opportunity to, how's that feel? Or what do you (laughs) think about that? Or how's that land on you? Over the past few years, I've been looking much more deeply inwardly, right? I mentioned I was first impacted by mindfulness when I was younger. I certainly didn't have a daily practice. My daily practice started not too long after I became an executive coach. It was actually a Georgetown leadership coaching program. We had to have a pause practice. Anyway, through that process, I got into really, I just wanted to do a deep dive into these writings and books. And so anything from the Bhagavad Gita, the Dhammapada, 
all of these ancient texts, and then also the more modern incarnations and interpretations of those texts. You know, Jack Kornfield, you had Dan Siegel on, Sharon Salzberg's writings, obviously John Kabat-Zinn's. And what I began to notice in my own life, especially at EY, where I had this thing that I was doing on the side, and on the side, there was just so much pull for it. I started to ask myself, and this maybe sounds cheesy, like, is the universe telling me something? Like, I'm swimming this way, and, you know, to win work in the intelligence community is very difficult. We did it. We were successful, but sort of skating uphill, and this is like the wind's at your back, and people really, really need it. And I think it was when I was delivering another milestones, you know, speaking to 3,600 people or going to the partner conference that happens like every three years, I realized this could be a job. Mm. I didn't even put a job in quotes because it doesn't feel like work, but it's more <laughs> of a calling, right? You can have a job, yeah. you can have a career, you can have a calling. And this started to feel like a calling. Fortunately for me, you know, I think timing is important. Preparation is important and I had the right timing with, I think, the right preparation. Mm. Believe me, if I got that call to replace the CEO and it was a day after I'd first started giving a presentation, I wouldn't have been able to do it. Right. So it feels amazing. Yeah. To answer your question, it feels absolutely amazing. Well, that comes through. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) your your calling and your joy behind your calling comes through. But it's also incredible that, as you're saying, the timing, just having the other support and the fact your leaders are hearing that this is what young people want or new talent coming Mm -hmm. to EY want to have the whole body taken care of. It's interesting, too, because this isn't only happening at EY, right? What's been happening is at many of these places, SAP, Aetna, LinkedIn, Salesforce, you know, you have one or two people that are pushing this and then many employees start to get involved and then there's a groundswell of support. And then at some point they say, you know what, we should make a position to really focus on this. And Mm. the fact that EY just did that is huge for our people. And for our future, I think. And we already have an amazing culture. If you look at any of the culture surveys, one of the best things about EY is our culture. That's why we have so many people coming back to EY called a boomerang. We have so many boomerangs. And so it's just the timing is wonderful. And I'm just grateful that I had the opportunity to demystify it because, you know, financial services, typically I wouldn't say it would be open arms to something with (laughs) what's been associated with mindfulness for so long. Right. Right. But mindfulness training isn't in every company still, obviously. Mm -hmm. So what would you say if a CEO of a company came to you asking why they should invest in mindfulness training? That's a good question. You have to know your audience, right? I think if you're going to talk to a CEO, you do have to address not only the benefits of less stress for their employees, you know, more of a focus, you have to address what is the return on investment. Let's just say table stakes is that you definitely say about all the sort of intangible, wonderful things that mindfulness has, right? So just to save time. And then you should definitely devote airtime or slide time, whatever, to data that's came out of Aetna that talked about 62 minutes per employee increased productivity, you know, thousands of dollars reduction in annual medical cost. SAP released data, not the granular data, but sort of top line data, 200% return on for every dollar spent in mindfulness, increases in employee engagement. And they've calculated that a mere 1% increase in employee engagement across the firm leads to, it's like 50 to 70 million euro to the bottom line. So this is not an insignificant amount of money and it's win-win. And I know there are some criticisms around using mindfulness to make people more efficient, using mindfulness to pad the bottom line or whatever. But I think that 
there's so much benefit to come of it. If the, somebody gets this at EY and they leave EY, I'm not happy that they leave EY. I'm happy that they have those skills mm-hmm. in life. To take it back and then they'd be better human beings for that and have yeah. a happier, more purposeful life. Yeah. So I did a presentation in Buffalo for the Northern New York Professional Women's Network. And I got an email the next day. It's really why I do what I do. Just the first few lines. I want to thank you for coming to Buffalo yesterday. Not to sound overly corny, but your message was life-changing for me. I've not been able to stop thinking about it. It was a revelation that all my life I've been trying to master multitasking and was looking at it all wrong. I've already implemented a few things into my work life today, but also shared some of your discussion during family dinner last night. I realize I did not articulate them as well as you, but hopefully something will stick. This is impacting their lives, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and whether or not it hits the bottom line or not, that is an employee that is going to be happier mm-hmm. if they implement these things. Right. Again, happy is relative, but to be able to feel like you have the tools to better navigate the normal ups and downs in life will reduce your stress. And then as you talked about earlier, it makes you healthier so you're not as sick, so you can show up a little bit more and be more present for your work. There's like three broad categories of impacts of the research that points to sort of correlating with mindfulness interventions. And they fall into physical mental health, they fall into emotional intelligence, and they fall into sort of learning and innovation with sort of increase in focus and working memory, and then sort of emotional intelligence, self-awareness, self-management, and then health and well-being. Things like lower stress, lower reactivity. The idea that they injected meditators and non-meditators with flu virus and meditators had much more robust immune system response is amazing. Nobody knows why, but that's a correlation there. So if you look at those three categories, physical and mental health, emotional intelligence, and learning and innovation, it's clear why companies would want to invest in this. So if you have healthier people, they're going to be on the job. If they have higher emotional intelligence, they're going to be better leaders, better teammates. And if they're more innovative, they're going to be able to serve their clients better or mm-hmm. develop more innovative products. It's remarkable that you get to be the guy I know. to I know. do this. <laughs> Pinch me. Pinch it must me. be exciting. So we always ask our guests what book they would recommend that everyone read. I thought of two because I wasn't sure if you meant around mindfulness or just in general. So I would do both. Do yeah. both. Okay. <laughs> so, and this is kind of interesting that this is a book that someone who was trying to help people have a different relationship with thoughts, but the book Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl, mm-hmm. you know, just the idea that if you understand why, you know, you can really endure any how. And then in terms of books on mindfulness, if you're scientifically inclined, I think Rick Hansen's Buddha's Brain is a wonderful book. And then I'm going to give you another one. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Kabat-Zinn's Wherever You Go, There You Are is a, mm, is yeah. a wonderful book. Yeah. That's a favorite. Yeah. Yeah. And then your favorite quote. My favorite quote is a quote by St. Francis of Assisi that is always preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. And it's not because I'm overly religious. It's more because it's about leading by example in whatever you're doing. I love that. Walking the walk Mm -hmm. as opposed Mm -hmm. to just talking it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's so beautiful. EY is lucky to have you. Oh, That's what you. I think. <laughs> thank you, Bill. So, so lucky much. to have you. Thank you, Cliff. For, yeah, for thank you for being today. with us today. Well, thanks for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure, <laughs> and I look forward to hopefully many more conversations like this as we continue to grow our programs. Yeah, we do too. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. 
And I'm Doro. Be well. <laughs>